Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. American Christianity on any level at all would have to be in a coma to, be, to have missed the anxious discussion about the departure of the, from the church of the millennial generation that has gone on for the past few years. This generation is called the nuns because of the way they answer the religion question on census surveys. Well, FCC was founded over 30 years ago by people who were trying very hard to reach the nuns who were trying of the time, who were trying to major on the majors of the Christian faith and minor on the minors. And FCC was supposed to be, and it was designed to be, inclusive of all people, contemporary in style and conservative in beliefs. And we have been working to do that. Only God can say how effective we've been at fulfilling that dream, but I can say that we've tried very hard. Um, Nevertheless, some of the criticisms of the church brought by millennials are important. It's far too easy as baby boomers, people in my generation, to be seduced by the siren song of politics. It happens at least once every four years, sometimes more often than that. Cal Thomas noted in a 2015 article, the moral quality of America did not improve during the two terms of the Ronald Reagan administration, who rarely attended church, or the one term of Jimmy Carter, who did. The moral compass did not point in a different direction during the two terms of George W. Bush, who said in a 2000 presidential debate that his favorite philosopher was Jesus. And contrary to some of our most cherished notions, postmodernism may turn out to be a greater friend to evangelism than modernism ever could be, because it at least allows for the idea that truth might be determined by something other than material sciences. So these and many other explanations are cited as the motive for millennial disenchantment with Christianity. But our speaker this morning is not speaking from theory. Uh, Stephen Kratz is the founder and director of the Carolina Study Center. The center is a campus-oriented teaching ministry that comes alongside other campus ministries to help. And through the center, Stephen has been working with college students, not theorizing about them, but working with them since 2001. He is the author of InterVarsity Press's If You Haven't Got a Prayer and 20 other works. Stephen studied Shakespeare, English, and history at the University of London, Divinity at Emory University in Atlanta, and studied under Francis Schaeffer at Labrie Fellowship in Switzerland. He's pastored several churches in Virginia and North Carolina before founding the Carolina Study Center. He spends a lot of time on the Duke and UNC campuses, and it is my great privilege to introduce my friend to you, Stephen Kratz. Good morning. I'd like to read to you a episode from the life of Christ, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, could not because of the crowd. 
So he ran on ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly into his home. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up in the midst of the supper and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I cheated anyone of anything, I will pay back four times what I took. Let us pray. Lord, we would like a sure word to help us live in this uncertain world. And we look to you, Lord, for the gift of preaching and teaching, the gift of hearing. Give us preaching and give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we can relate to your creation, especially your people in ways that are pleasing to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. In 1975, my wife and I moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Charlotte Courthouse, Virginia. Uh, if you're from around here, that's a village of about 600 people, about 50 miles north of here in Charlotte County. The population was about 10,000 cows <laughs> and 600 people. And we used to joke, it's not the end of the world, but on a clear day, you can see it from there. And they used to brag there's not a stoplight in the whole county, though now there's one on 360. And there may be one other one, I'm not sure. But anyway, I used to uh, have one car. My wife had children then. I would uh, walk to work in the morning so she could have the car and do her grocery shopping or take the kids to the doctor or whatever. And then I would walk home for lunch and get the car. And it was a simple life, a wonderful place to, to sire children, and to be a pastor and get your feet wet. I also served the church in Drake's Branch, Virginia. And being in a two church charge was very interesting. When one church was mad at you, usually the other one wasn't. So you could uh, get twice the experience in half the, the time. Anyway, about um, walking to work, I tried to be there at 8 in the morning because people think preachers are lazy. And I thought, well, I'm not going to keep bankers hours. I'm going to get to work at 8. didn't work. You still get criticized as being lazy as a minister. But anyway, being to work at 8 in the morning, about 10.30, I got the munchies. And a half a block up the street was the courthouse. And there was a drugstore there where you could get a drink and a cookie. And then I would take it out and sit on the courthouse step or the wall. And usually there was another group of codgers sitting there and we would talk. We were sitting there one day talking about, I think the Jimmy Carter election actually it was. And this guy pulled up to the gas pump, was filling his truck up. He had a Richmond tag on his truck. And he looked around for somebody to make conversation with and he saw us sitting on the wall. And to none of us in particular, he said, wow, Charlotte Courthouse, Virginia. Fresh air, sunshine, 
no traffic. You sure don't have much of a population problem here. One of the old guys beside me looked at him and says, boy, let me tell you, nearly every problem we've got around here is caused by the population. <laughs> it was Reinhold Niebuhr that said, man's greatest problem is man himself. And if you look at our world today, divorce, wife battering, racism, war, uh, prejudice, homicide, injustice. Dang near every problem we got is caused by the population. I was doing a wedding for a um, Duke student in Boston a few summers ago, and one of his ushers had on a naval officer's uniform, and he had on a submariner pin. And I commented, you're on a boat, a sub. He said, that I am. In fact, she's down at Groton. You want to see her? And I said, you would let me see your submarine? He'd say, you and your two sons, you come down, you spend the night in my apartment. I'll take you on a tour of a nuclear submarine. Well, we were there a few days later. We went all over that submarine. And I learned something that I still wish I didn't know. One nuclear Trident submarine carries 5,000 times more firepower than all the munitions expended by every army in World War II put together. That's where we are as people. We have it within our own power to destroy ourselves. Now all this is as old as human sin. When the second person was created in the book of Genesis, uh, Adam looked at Eve, his wife, and he fled prose and spoke poetry to her, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But that poetry in human relationships didn't last. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they fell to sin, they broke in their relationship with God, with themselves, with the environment, and even with other people. And that poetry turned to blame when Adam blamed his wife for the sin. Their bickering was picked up by Cain and Abel, now, Cain, remember, was a farmer, and he offered plants or produce in the worship of the Lord. His brother Abel, though, was a sheep herder, and he offered a lamb. And God had already taught them when he took the fig leaves away and gave them animal skins that the covering for their sin had to include blood. And he should have known better. He could have traded his produce for a lamb and offered as God wanted him to. But like us... Cain wanted God on his own terms. And when God had no favor for his offering, do you remember what Cain did? He murdered his brother. You want blood? I'll give you blood. And he slew his brother. And you can see the depths of depravity of human sin in that. Well, then you come to the fourth chapter of Genesis and the second oldest poem in human literature. Lamech writes a braggadocious poem saying, This man struck me, I killed him, I over-retaliated. And he uses me and I and my personal pronouns over half a dozen times in a simple three-sentence poem. Man's greatest problem, Niebuhr said, is man himself. Now, Jesus came along 
And he talked to us about how to relate to God by faith in a life of worship. But Jesus also did the second part of the great commandment. Not just that we love God, but we love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus demonstrated how to love our neighbor. Now what I'm about to teach you is not spoken in scripture. It's rather demonstrated. And I want you to see how Jesus didn't talk about how to love his neighbor, but how he actually did it. Jesus uses four steps in loving his neighbor. The first is data collection. Here Jesus is walking into Jericho. And he sees the man Zacchaeus up a tree, spiritually hungry, little short guy, terribly unpopular because he's a tax collector, and yet so spiritually hungry he does something undignified. He climbs a tree to look at Jesus in the face when he passes by. Can't you see Jesus bobbing along on a burrow? And there's a tree up ahead with this little short Jewish man pushing the branches back with this quizzical little face looking down at him. And Jesus calls his name. Now, Christ incarnated himself in our world. And he had what we charismatics call a spiritual gift of knowledge. What did Jesus know about Zacchaeus? He knew his name, even though he'd never met him. He knew he was short. He knew he was spiritually hungry. He was eager to learn. He ran ahead. And he was willing to do something that was a bit embarrassing. He, he also knew that he was a materialist who had gained great wealth, but the wealth didn't satisfy him. Uh, probably he was so unpopular he couldn't go out in public without being spat upon. And there was a group of Jewish people called the Sicarii who carried daggers. Anytime they found a Roman collaborator alone, they would stab him. His wife probably got depressed. His marriage was probably on the rocks. His social life dried up like a fig tree. And Jesus knew this through a word of knowledge. Now, we often don't have that spiritual gift. But we can incarnate ourselves in our world. And God has given us two eyes, two ears, and one mouth which tells us through natural law that we should listen and look twice as much as we talk. And so we can probe in people's lives. I was doing a conference about 30 years ago up in Albany, New York with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I was a morning platform speaker. And it turns out a lot of the coaches had some troubles in their marriages. So they asked me if at night I would talk to them about marriage. So it was double duty. It was 18 hour days. Once you made some sense about marriage, the women just came saying, you've got to help my husband. He's impossible to live with. His temper is tied into his one loss record. and He hadn't won many this year. and He's just an angry man. Well, after a week of this conference, I was exhausted and I was looking forward to getting on the plane and we flew from Albany to Baltimore, where I changed planes for Durham, Raleigh, North Carolina. I was looking forward to getting some sleep. So I get on the plane, I got a window seat, some leg room, and I'm buckling in, and I'm just getting ready to recline. And 
kind of go into a lazy fog of a sleep when this little old lady comes and sits beside me with blue, blue eyes and in a terrible, weak, trembling voice, she said, Oh, Sonny, I do hope it's not raining in Baltimore today. I wanted to look at her and say, Madam, I could care less what it's doing in Baltimore today. I'm just going to sleep. And I smiled at her and said, well, I hope the weather will be clear. And I turned my back and leaned against the window and tried to sleep. She took my hand and says, do you really think the weather is going to be good in Baltimore? And I said, well, I have no way of knowing, but I, I do hope it is so. I turn again and give her the body language, leave me alone, woman. I want to sleep. About 10 minutes later, I really hope the weather's going to be good in Baltimore. So finally I sat up and says, Madam, what do you care what the weather is about in Baltimore? Oh, my husband of 37 years is dead, cancer. I've taken care of him the last nine years. Terrible bout of cancer, she said, but he's dead and his casket is in the bottom of the plane. When we get to Baltimore, we're going to drive out to the cemetery and there's a priest there to do his funeral. Well, I kind of sat up and we used to call it in football, suck it up and go. Uh, so we talked and she told me how she met her husband and what his name was and about their three children and how two of them were already dead and the struggle with her husband and her tears and how exhausted she was and how she just hoped for a sunny day in Baltimore. The plane landed and another seatmate had been listening to all this. We walked her to um, the place where she got her luggage and got her a taxi. And just as I shut the door, you know what I heard her say to the taxi driver? Oh, I do hope it's not going to be raining in Baltimore. <laughs> and I caught myself praying, Lord, please help him to listen. Please help him to listen. The first step in loving your neighbor and engaging society around you is to be incarnate in it, not to run away from it. God didn't. He came to this sinful world when we weren't worthy. And he listened. And look at how much he knew about Zacchaeus, his name, his spiritual hunger, where he was, up a tree, what he needed. You can go on and on. Now, once a person has unbarricaded themselves and revealed a little bit of who they are, as well as who they're not, their failures with their successes, there's an awkward moment. Is this person going to laugh at me? Are they going to reject me? Do they think my beard looks funny? Will they think I'm too uneducated? Uh, I remember a, a lady in the church that didn't like me very much as a new pastor. And the elders said, why don't you go sit down with her and find out what you did to tick her off? Because she is just saying awful things about you. So I went and said, look, I don't know how we got sideways, but the word is, is you've been saying some pretty awful things. Have I offended you? If so, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, forget it. I said, well, I can't. Uh, there's something wrong. What's the matter? And she said, well, if you must know, you remind me of my first husband. <laughs> <laughs> a 
Not much I can do for you, lady. <laughs> Grin and bear it. But the second step in that awkward moment of loving your neighbor is to move beyond data collection and move into what we call affirmation. When I was a pastor in Wilmington, North Carolina, Michael Jordan, the basketball player, uh, was about to retire from basketball. And he owned the Washington Wizards. And he would bring his team down from D.C. to practice before the NBA began. And he was a player coach owner at that time. So if you wanted to see Michael Jordan play his last year, Wilmington was the place to be. And in UNCW, there was a small arena that you could buy a ticket in to see him. It was the hottest ticket in town. Now imagine you got a ticket and you could get in. And you were sitting way up high in the nosebleed sections. Everybody had come to see Michael Jordan. Halftime came and Jordan put his sweatsuit on, was striding off the court when he stopped. And he looked way up there in section XYZ, seat six, where you're sitting, and he waves. And everybody's looking around, who's he waving at? And finally, when he's not getting the response he wants, he takes the steps forward at a time with those big long legs and kneels down right in front of you and says, Charles, don't rush off. I want to have supper with you after the game. How would that make you feel? Big man in Wilmington. Me and MJ hanging. And that's what you find in the text. Jesus, this most famous messianic person, is on a donkey on his way to Jerusalem, riding into Jericho. Zacchaeus, the most affirming thing you can do for a person is call them by their own name. Sweetest sound in the world, I'm told. I must have supper at your house today. Come down. Can you imagine that little Jewish man slithering down the tree and walking like a bandy hen? You guys make fun of me. I'm short. You don't invite me to your parties. This man knows who I am. He calls my name. He's coming into my house. What a great act of affirmation. Now, I love to people watch as a minister. And uh, Walmart is a great place to people watch. Recently, I see this exasperated mother that tells the kid, no, put that back for the 37th time. And the kid sits down in the middle of the floor, wets himself, and pitches a temper tantrum. The woman who's on her last nerve, and this kid has exceeded her medications, <laughs> grabs that child by the arm and yanks him up. I don't know how his arm is not dislocated. And she jerks him up to her face and says, you are bad. And you just wait till I get you home to your daddy. He's going to beat the tar out of you, you worthless little. And you think, oh my goodness, to grow up in a home like that for 18 years, that would be a terrible thing. Now, the same day I do that, I go out to watch my grandson, Joseph Patrick, play softball. You ever gone to an eight-year-old softball game? It's like watching paint dry. <laughs> Nothing ever happens. Pitch, swing, miss. Pitch, swing, miss. 
Well, about the 84th inning, it seemed, <laughs> the guy pitched the ball, and somebody's kid actually connected with it and knocked a pop fly over the right fielder. The right fielder was having a nap sitting on his ball glove, and his parents yelled his name, and he woke up and he looked around, what is it, what is it? And they pointed, and he started running towards the ball, but he left his glove behind. Meanwhile, the kid that had got the hit is looking up in the stands at his father, and his father's clapping for him, and the kid starts clapping for himself, jumping up and down on home plate. The outfielder's just about to get the ball, and the father says, no, son, you gotta go. Go, son, you gotta do it. And the kid looks confused, and he runs out and tackles the pitcher. <laughs> And the father, not to be deterred, that's my boy. <laughs> he can hit. He can run the bases. He can tackle. He just didn't know what game he's in. Which home would you rather grow up in? You, you see how important affirmation is? Jesus, in his word in Philippians, says, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, Think on these things. And if you look at Christ in Scripture, you see him relating to Peter, a big swaggering fisherman who makes bold statements but doesn't back them up with his behavior. And Jesus says, that's not a weak man. Your name is Peter. You're a rock. I'll build my church on you. Or someone sees a harlot in the dust. Not much for the kingdom of God there. Jesus said, that's no weak lady. That's Mary Magdalene. She'll be with me at the cross and with me at the empty grave and with me at the birth of the church. He could look at people and affirm deep down what's good in them. You remember the old nursery rhyme of the wicked witch that turned the handsome prince into a green, slimy, warty, burpy bullfrog? You'll never be handsome prince again until a beautiful princess comes along and kisses you on those warty lips. What chance is there that's going to happen? So off he goes to sit on a lily pad and bewail his fate. But one day that very thing happens. A beautiful princess looks beyond all the ugly to the real prince inside and kisses him. And slowly the frog drops away and the handsome prince is restored. Affirmation. It's a second step in loving your neighbor. Now, once you have revealed something about yourself to others and they've affirmed you, it builds something of a trust relationship. I feel safe with this person. They don't reject me. They don't laugh at me. They know some of my foibles and they receive me. And trust is built so you're ready to go to third base. And what's third base? Problem solving. Problem solving. What was Zacchaeus' problem? He was a materialist. He had taken advantage of people, taking more tax money than he should have. He was living a life of luxury in a world that was filled with pain. He lacked what Francis Schaeffer called the compassionate use of wealth. It's all for me. Me, mine, and my. If there's anything left over, I'll take that too. But the rest of the people were just people for me to fleece. 
And he was spiritually empty. The world is not big enough to fill us. And so Jesus saw the problems, and somehow around the supper table, they talked about those issues. I remember uh, preaching in a Presbyterian church in Burlington, North Carolina, a few years ago. It was during a flu season, not quite as bad as the one we've recently been through. But um, I remember they didn't cancel church. This was a dying church. There was just a handful of people there, maybe 30 people. But that's enough to minister to and be faithful. There's plenty of people, actually. But I, I watched how they handled the pandemic. Now, because we're all liable to kill each other with the flu, we're not going to shake hands. There should be no hugging. Uh, we'll all sit well distanced apart. Um, we're not going to sing any hymns today because you might breathe on somebody. There'll be a short message. And it was the coldest, most sterile worship service I think I've ever been in. Now, that same week, I went to speak at Campus Crusade at Duke University. Same flu epidemic ravaging the campus. There were only six people in crusade then. We weren't sure it was going to make it. We thought that it might need to close. Just six people. But we had our Bible study, and afterwards there was a discussion. What can we do to minister to people in the flu epidemic? Well, the mothers and dads aren't there to care for sick students. Let's carry them soup. Let's carry their homework to their professors. Let's let the professors know who's sick and how long they're going to be out of commission. And many of these sick students over the next few months got the flu themselves. Not all of them, but many of them did. But because of their reputation as being caregivers on campus, Campus Crusade, the next time I went, had 14 people in it. And by the end of the year, it had 60. And two years later, it had 400 coming out. And I look at the two ways the church and crusade handled the epidemic. And I see that those that were involved with people's problems, earning their trust, made people feel safe and wanted and loved. And it caused the group to grow. Now, what we're talking about here is like a game of baseball. You've got uh, four bases. To get to first base with people, you incarnate yourself and gather data. Second base is affirmation. Third base is dealing with the no or the problems in people's lives. And then home plate is what we call goal setting. Do you remember right in the middle of the supper, Zacchaeus stands up? And he said, behold, the half of my wealth I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to restore it fourfold. He set his own goal. And Jesus looked at him and smiled and didn't comment. He thought it was a good goal. Now, just to show you that this is not rocket science, that Christ repetitively dealt with this relational theology lifestyle. Look at the woman caught in the act of adultery. Data collection, woman, caught, adultery. Look at affirmation, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Look at problem solving. The only time Jesus ever wrote anything in scripture was in that passage with the woman. 
he knelt down with his finger and wrote something in the dirt. Now we don't know what he wrote, but I look at it with the evangelical imagination, which all of us preachers surely have. And I think he stood in front of this one man who had a rock in each hand ready to bash this woman's skull for adultery. And he wrote the name of the man's mistress. And the man sort of took his sandal and smoothed the name out in the dust and dropped the stones and disappeared into the shade. Then he went over to this other man and he wrote the exact sum that he had just embezzled from the synagogue. Same thing happened until there was no one left. And then he gold sat. Woman, neither do I condemn you. The goal, go and what? Sin no more. Now, Jesus didn't always succeed with every person. You remember the story of the rich young ruler? Data collection. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. It's really simple, isn't it? And we get paid for this. Uh, he's a rich, young ruler. And affirmation, Jesus looked on him and loved him. He made his face to shine upon him. And then Jesus began to deal with the no, the problem in the person's life. All these laws I've kept from my youth. What else must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, oh really? You kept all the laws? And he mentioned the first commandment. And he said, go and give your wealth to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have great riches in heaven. And at this the man's countenance fell and he went away sorrowfully for he had great wealth. Uh, Jesus would run the bases with people, but he didn't always knock a homer with each person. Um, in a church that I served right out of seminary, we had uh, four elders. And all four of the wives of these elders were alcoholics. And three of the elders were alcoholics. That's the state of the church in the 70s up in rural Midlands of Virginia. The lady who played the organ in our church was an alcoholic. And she was also mean. And her husband just didn't know how to control her. Well, one day I show up from preaching the early service in Drake's Branch. And her husband always met me in my study and prayed with me, which was kind of nice. He was the only elder that did that. But this day he was distracted. And since it was so close on the 11 o'clock hour, I didn't have time to ask him. So I went in and sat down. Now here I am in my robe. I'm sitting in this big throne-like chair that they give Presbyterian ministers to sit in as a symbol of respect for the word. And I'm not a musician, but I'm listening to the prelude and it's not quite right. And I look up from my meditation into the pleading eyes of the congregation. And they're looking at me with great concern. And I look to the left, to the organist, and she is drunk. And she's drooling on the keys. And it's awful. And I look back at the congregation like, what do I do? And they're all sitting there. Well, Mr. Divinity School graduate, I'm sure you had a course in how to handle this at Emory in Atlanta. So big guy that we're paying, handle it. Well, the Southern gentleman took over in me and I thought, 
you know, I'm just going to walk over and say, now, Margaret, you're not well today. Collect your purse, and David, come and get your wife. Let's get you home. We'll sort this out later. But then I remembered that she had a reputation for getting really mean when she was drunk. And I could see her beating me in front of the congregation with her purse. So I, I said, I'm not going to do that. You know what I did? I ignored her. And I walked up with great enthusiasm. Welcome to the house of the Lord today. This is going to be a good day. We're going to really raise the roof singing this opening hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Well, she played one version of Holy, Holy something. <laughs> and we sang at the top of our lungs. Now, we had visitors that day. And you could see the look on their face, the pain and the surprise. Is this a cult? Are these charismatics? Are, are they singing in tongues? What, what is going on here? It was a long day. It was a short day. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, as Charles Dickens said. Well, after the service, David came and got his wife and fled. He was so ashamed. The children were so ashamed. Margaret was too drunk to be ashamed. Um, the phone started ringing that afternoon, and people said, we need to do an intervention. And so that next night, Monday, 16 people went and sat in a circle with her. We love you, Margaret. Been your friend for half a century, but you really let your family down. You embarrassed yourself, your family. You need help, you're not well. We need to talk about this. And you know, she went and got treatment and dried out and played the organ there till she was in her 90s. I actually did their, her funeral a few years back. Uh, they didn't have a pastor then and invited me back. And she died a saintly old woman. Goal setting, you need help. Here's some steps to take. Here's how you trust Christ. Here's how you read the Bible. Here's how you pray. Repentance is hard, but it's a ripened fruit of the Spirit within you. Let's get started on that. I remember um, the Lucy Peanuts comic strip. You remember Lucy is in love with Schroeder? And Schroeder loves to play the piano, especially Bach or Mozart. And he's, he's playing his Mozart and Lucy comes and lays her head on the piano and sighs, and Schroeder's just totally ignoring her, playing his Mozart. Finally, when he takes a break, she looks at him and says, Schroeder, do you even know what love is? And Schroeder stands up and says, love can be an action verb. It's an outward inexpressibility of an all-overishness. It's a feeling you feel when you feel that you feel in a feeling you never felt before. A fond attachment for another human being. Lucy just sighs and says, gee, on paper, Schroeder's just great, isn't he? <laughs> and here on paper, we have the doctrine of relational theology. The incarnated Christ come to a sinful world and gathering data, offering affirmation, dealing with the sin, the problem in people's lives, and setting goals. Now, we talk about, give me that old-time religion. I'm not sure there's any old-time religion. It's just 
the religion of Christ. Uh, you don't call a person old-fashioned because they drink water each day or sleep each day or hunger for human companionship each day. 90% of how you reach people for Christ never changes. Just go relationally, theologically, and follow the steps of Jesus. But there's about 10%, I think, that changes from generation to generation. It's like uh, people always love French fries, but some people, maybe in the next generation, don't want ketchup on them. They want vinegar on them. It's a slight change, but it's still French fries. And I, I think how we evangelize the generation is not that complex, that it changes. But it does change enough that we need to be aware of it. This generation, called the millennials, are part of what I call the throwaway generation. Um, they don't strop their razors anymore. You just simply shave with a bick and throw it away. Any of you ever gather bottles when you were a kid for five cents a piece? Yeah, I did that. That's how I got in the movies. Uh, I gave it up as undignified when uh, girls came along and started mowing lawns to earn money to take them to movies. But uh, nobody returns a bottle anymore. They're disposable. The same with the pen. We used to fill our pens with a new cartridge or a refill. Now you use a bit till it's empty and you throw it away. Now we abort our children. Now we throw our marriages away. Do you know that 73% of black children grow up in a single parent home without a father? 39% of Hispanics grow up in a single parent home. And 26% of white children grow up in a single parent home. Children have been scarred by the throwaway generation. They've seen what divorce can do, what alimony looks like. The most violent place in America today is the human womb. There are more abortions in Orange County where I live than five births. Let me say that again. There are more abortions in the part of North Carolina I live in than live births. You'd expect it from a university, wouldn't you? Girls get pregnant, have an abortion. The same is true in Fayetteville, where the United States Army is bivouacked. It's a terrible problem in our culture today, and kids have been scarred by the violence of the family, uh, psychically scarred. In 1968, when I first went into the ministry, and we had a meeting like this one, and you invited people to come out to the meeting, do you know what the first thing they asked was? What's the subject matter? And they would decide whether they wanted to come, whether they were interested in the study of apologetics or the book of Titus or, or whatever. By 1985, you would invite people to a meeting, and they no longer said, what's the subject? They said, who's teaching? And they decided on the pastoral personality, whether they wanted to attend or not. In 1995, you would have a meeting and people would say, who else is going to be there? I remember taking my daughter up to Washington Lee University to speak in chapel. She had a friend named Helen who was attending school there, who was a Christian. And we invited Helen to come out to the meeting. And Helen popped in, and you could see her head go up like a periscope. And she looked around, 
And this was not her kind of cool kids. So she gave Claire the friendship and Jake told her she missed her and left the meeting with some flimsy excuse. So we've gone from the 60s, what's the subject? To the 80s, who's teaching? To the 90s, who will be there? And now, do you know what this generation wants to know when you invite them to the meeting? Do you really want me there? Uh, Rosaria Butterfield uh, may ring a bell in some of your names. She was a tenured professor of 18th century English literature by women at Rutgers. She was a practicing lesbian. Presbyterian minister and her started conversations and she ended up being converted. She married Kent Butterfield, who's a Presbyterian minister at a very orthodox Presbyterian church in Durham where they practice radical hospitality. They've gone into the inner city where the druggies, the throwaway people are, the people who belong to no one. And last Thanksgiving, they invited the community, especially a lot of people just out of prison, to come to their table for Thanksgiving. And Rosaria hand-knitted a placemat with each person's name on it around the table. But there was one space that was empty, a man they really wanted to come, didn't show up. Well, just as they were finishing the meal and going for dessert, he came in the door. And he looked and saw his name on a placemat at an empty seat. And you know what his comment was? You really did want me here. And that's the deep question this generation that is so harmed by the breakup of the family and the marriage is asking, am I wanted there? Am I wanted there? I remember a guy made me feel good like that last Christmas. He said, uh, I want to go to the steakhouse where they're having a history night and they had this man that's presenting George Washington who's going to come tell his life story. And I would love to have you sitting beside me, Stephen, while we enjoy that. How can you turn an invitation down like that? I really would love you sitting beside me while we enjoyed that. And I responded to that. This generation really responds to that. Now, all this is to tell you that some generations respond to apologetics, others to good expository preaching. This generation really responds to kindness, one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness. In the Greek, the word kindness is krestos. In the Greek, the word Christ is Christos. There's only an I and an E difference. And the early Romans were terribly confused about Christians. Are they people committed to Christos, acts of kindness? Or are they committed to this man who died on a cross, Christos, Christ? We don't know which. What a delightful confusion. Let's keep the world confused. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you came and walked among us. And you gave dignity to men and women like Zacchaeus. And you offer that same dignity to us. Teach us to be a relational people. Whether we're shy or introverted or outgoing, 
shape our personalities and shape our personal evangelism that we can speak to this wounded generation. In Christ's name, amen. Do we have time for questions? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. I think we do. You want to just take a stool there? And, and sure. Let me open this up first. And this was, for me, I don't know what it's like for you guys, but for me, when I listen to Stephen, I just sort of get lost in the, in the story. And it becomes, uh, it, it, it gets difficult at that point for me to think about anything else but the beauty of the story and where the story goes. And that happened this morning. Um, I wonder if that happens to you and if you have any questions about our topic this morning for Stephen. Uh, yes, Will. People tend to come to Jesus at what we call entry points. Um, marriage, uh, childbirth, death, uh, failure, unemployment, and being sensitive to people who are at third base. They have great pain in their life and incarnating yourself in their life and affirming them and saying, you know, you, you don't have to walk this alone. We can, we can help. Um, I've seen churches uh, go to name tags. We all know each other's name, but the stranger in our midst doesn't. And uh, there's a name tag that helps me say Bruce or Janice or whatever. Um, one of the ways that churches often start growing is by single people that just can't handle life, divorced or whatever. I've seen churches um, get the men and women together who have mechanical skills and offer to give a free oil change to uh, any single woman who comes on a Saturday morning to the church. They'll check the tire pressure and look at the hoses and the fan belts and change the oil and maybe you know leave them with an invitation. Uh, I remember once in um, a church that uh, I used to preach at it Sunday afternoons that was without a pastor and was kind of dying. Um, we decided that we would meet and play a game of volleyball. And then we would eat and then we'd have a worship service. And I watched with great humor how people came to play volleyball or to watch their friend play volleyball. They stayed for the meal and they stayed for the worship service just because there was a fellowship of engagement and a kind of a picnic atmosphere. I think that uh, there's all kinds of things we can do to touch people with kindness. But basically, we feel along the edge of their soul 
till you find a crack that you can insert the gospel in. Um, I was telling one of your elders, uh, Durham is a huge homosexual transvestite town. And I was in a coffee shop in the past year and I got my drink and I turned around and there was a person crowded up to me. I'm used to him being six feet away. So I almost bumped into him and spilt my drink on him. And I looked up into these very troubled eyes. And then I saw the long hair and the lipstick. But then I saw the stubble of a beard. And it confused me. Wait a minute. This is a woman? No. Some, oh, 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 yeah. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know. And uh, I sat down to have my drink. And uh, the place was full. This guy got his drink. And he was looking around, and you know, it, it was just natural to say, "Come on over and, and sit down." And I introduced myself. And we were two different worlds. But I asked him. I said, uh, "Tell me your name. Tell me about yourself." And he started in with a tale of woe, a broken family, abuse, confusion, and we talked for the better part of an hour. And. Uh, then he finally said, who are you, mister? And, you know, I, I told him and uh, said, if you'd like to consider the conversation sometime, I'd be willing to do that. I haven't heard from him, but I know I sowed seeds in his life. I, I think just um, wake up every morning and say, who have you got there for me, Lord, that I can be kind to? And then run the bases with them. Some people you spend years just gathering data and affirming them. I have eight grandchildren, and one of my grandsons, uh, Beckett, is at NC State. Wonderful kid, but prone to depression. He, he was not near as mature as we thought when we sent him off to school. Lots of parking tickets. Um, professor accused him of plagiarism. Um, he got depressed, living alone, um, lives in a suite with two other men. One is gay, the other one is off with his girlfriend all the time, and uh, drove home to his parents weeping, saying, I'm worthless, I, I can't do this work, I can't whatever. And uh, Kat and I went down there, for years, I've just run the bases, but I've got never got to third base with him. But this time, he opened up and said, uh, "Papa, what what does this mean?" And he has a very weak relationship with Christ. He just hasn't pursued it on campus. And we talked and began to set some goals. I've got on my phone the first turkey he shot in turkey season, and all of that made him happy. And uh, he talks to my wife. Just kindness is the entrance into their life. Someone else? I think, the, I think the difficulty for me, and it's probably one of the things that drove my desire to start this conference, mm -hmm. goes back to um, kind of what Todd was discussing last night and what I've seen in the homosexual world 
is the whole idea of subversion. So you've outlined a process for us to run the bases. Yeah. And let's say that we're doing that as a church and as individuals. And we draw someone in or and the either it's just the devil working in their lives or uh, unconsciously or not. But what begins to happen is instead of us working through step one and step two and then beginning to set goals, what begins to happen is an identification and a relationship and a warmth, but then a subversion of the relationship um, to begin. Because so many of the stories that you hear and read about Christians who held one position and then flip-flopped and went to another position would be because they had a relationship with a homosexual person. And my assumption is that the Christian is not able to separate their emotions Mm -hmm. from truth and operate that way. But I I personally am deeply concerned about the subversive effect. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, the word sin is an archery term. It, it means to shoot at the bullseye with an archer's arrow and miss the target, to miss the bullseye. Um, it comes from Genesis where uh, the people could sling a rock at a hare at several hundred yards and not miss. And the word not miss means sin, not fall short, not miss the mark. So what's the bullseye for sex? There are four purposes scripture teaches that God created sex. The first is companionship. First negative statement in the Bible. It's not good that the man should live alone. Life's most concentrated form of human relationship is marriage between a man and a woman, married love. The second purpose of sex is procreation. The first commandment in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It didn't say you had to do it all by yourself, but it is a command to have children. And our society is terribly confused about children. They're crumb snatchers, they burn your career, they're expensive. We're putting off having children. The birth rate in America has now dropped below the replacement rate. So our population will shrink uh, unless we... uh, start encouraging motherhood again, stable families. The third purpose of sex is joy. Now, I don't know who canonized the Old Testament, the books in the order he did, but I do want to shake his hand someday. Follow this. Psalms is followed by Proverbs, is followed by Ecclesiastes, is followed by the Song of Solomon. Psalms is 150 worship psalms that galvanize your relationship with God through worship. The books will wear you out. Every vicissitude of life is discussed there as an act of worship. Then you come to Proverbs, 31 chapters, one for every day of the month, of living decently with people. Now, if that doesn't make you exhausted, you need what Shakespeare called comic relief. <laughs> and you remember uh, in Hamlet, the gravedigger scene? 
the humorous gravedigger scene? Why does that suddenly pop up in all the severity of Hamlet? Shakespeare knew you couldn't push people with intensity too long. You needed to lighten up a little, so he put some humor in the midst of this murderous story. Now, the Song of Solomon, um, or Ecclesiastes, uh, follows the book of Proverbs, where the guy says, I'm absolutely exhausted from trying to know God and live decently with people. Life is futile. The only thing I can say is know the Lord early in your life so when you're an old man you won't say I have no use of these days. You need some relief. The Song of Solomon. Now what in the heck is it about? It's a nuptial poem or what the Jews would call chivalry. It's the unveiling on the honeymoon night. It's probably not a poem. It's probably seven fragments of poems that give you what I call a Kodak moment of how they met, what they saw in each other, why they fell in love, their wedding is described, their honeymoon is described, where he starts at the uh, top of her head and works his way down. Then they have a quarrel and they make up and he starts at the bottom of her feet and works his way up. And the last chapter, he says, we got a little sister and she's going through puberty. What do we do with our little sister in love? And they basically say, lock her up. <laughs> and don't let her out till love pleases. What the Bible is saying here is that in a world where we struggle to know God and struggle to live decently with people and struggle with the futility of life, there's the sweetness of married love at the end of the day. Now, the fourth purpose of marriage is to be the little picture, the big picture. Paul said, how a man loves his wife is like how Christ loves the church. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. Where did history begin in Genesis? A wedding between Adam and Eve. Where did Jesus launch his public ministry with his first miracle? The wedding feast, where he turned water into wine. Where did Jesus say history will be consummated? The wedding supper of the Lamb. So marriage is a little picture of the big picture. It's what we call the hors d'oeuvre, the little meal before the big meal. Now, with that in mind, can homosexuals have companionship? Yes. Can homosexuals have joy? Yes. Can homosexuals procreate? No. Is the picture of who God is in a man and a man or a woman and a woman? No. God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, created he man. And he said that marriage is between the feminine and the masculine coming together. So they, they fall short, but so does divorce, so does rape, so does incest. And, and not to put too fine a picture on it, it's a very unhealthy relationship, gay lifestyles. The average lifespan of a homosexual is 40 years. The average homosexual male has had 1,200 partners by the time he's 40. Now you think that's impossible. No, not for gays. They tend to be active about age 16. They often have three, four partners uh, a week in a bathhouse or in the gay bars. But let's, let's say they only have one a week. Um, 
in a year they'd have 50 farmers. In 10 years, 500. In 20 years, 1,000. And uh, one out of five Americans has a sexually transmitted disease. If you've had 1,200 partners, you have gotten exposed to a lot of illnesses, and many of them are incurable. And again, just being totally honest with you, the book of Leviticus talks about not eating animals that have the blood in them. Uh, it talks about the quarantine. Uh, it talks about... Um, purity sexually. Uh, homosexual lifestyles often mix blood and urine and excrement in the mouth and people get sick. And then they come to the government saying, you've got to fix me. And I always tell my gay people, there's a cure for AIDS right now, singleness, or a man for a woman for life. So we, we need to give the intellectual part of it, but we need to give it not in a bombastic, ugly way. I don't debate homosexuality much anymore, but I did a lot of it for 20 years through the late 80s to about 2010. I always showed up early and stayed late. And the gay debater came on time and walked out the door when it was over, but I stayed later. Boy, I got lots of hugs. I got lots of people saying, well, I don't agree with a single thing you said, but you are a sweet man. And I said, well, I'll take that. But I, I think when people call me homophobic, and they do, I say, I'm not homophobic, I'm theophobic. And you should be too. You should fear the Lord in a healthy way. And when they say, oh, you're homophobic, I often say, well, I wouldn't say that's how my gay friends would, would describe me. I don't let them define me. You know, if they want to stop an argument, oh, you're something phobic. No, I'm, I'm not afraid. I just see some truth there that I think is worth sharing. Hmm. Very good. Thank you, Bob. So can I, pair, can I rephrase that and just say, how do we as a believers... And as a church, just combat the general drift of subversion that's out there in the culture. Is that? Yeah. Did I get it, Bob? Well, I think. Yeah, this uh, young black woman said, don't quote the Constitution to me. That's your Constitution. That's not mine. And I said, how so? And she said, my people were slaves. They weren't invited to the table. That Constitution enslaved me. And I said, yes, well, this Constitution, uh, our forefathers didn't know how to end slavery. Thomas Jefferson called it, we have the wolf by the ears. Uh, Madison said that he knew slavery would end, he just didn't know how or when. They did create a Constitution that gave women the vote, that gave the blacks the vote, that ended slavery eventually. Uh, it's an engine that fixes itself going forward. And, I ask her, do you think you and your generation can bypass Mr. Jefferson and Washington and uh, Madison and create a better government? She said, yes. This generation is uh, really pushing the limits. You know, the, the thing we've got to do is, as Christians, especially white Christians, 
The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was started as an all-male white school for intelligent, wealthy enough kids. Uh, it stayed that way till the 60s. The first blacks were allowed in, and then women could come their junior year if they had a grade point average. Now, Carolina is 69% female. They're the best students. Um, it has a large element of blacks there who are asking, why are all the buildings named after white supremacists? Or why is there a Confederate statue greeting you when you first come on campus glorifying the Civil War and the Confederacy? Uh, those are legitimate questions. Um, I am not a presentist as a historian that judges people of the past by present values. I think that's way to study history. But Carolina is coming up to speed being a campus that has the nations of the world there. Duke is too. You sit on the steps of Duke Chapel and you think you're in a foreign country. Students from India, China, black students. Um, whites are becoming the minority in our culture. Mixed race is the new biggest group. And as we come together, good things can happen, but the university hasn't taught us how to live together. So guess what? The University of North Carolina blacks got together. They wanted their own black student center, freestanding. And we said, but we desegregated. We want our own, and they got it. Now the American Indian students want their own and there's a grad student one, and they don't mix them together. Carolina has brought the nations of the world together, but it hasn't taught them how to love each other and live together. And that's one place I think the church can be helpful. We're going to have to be intentional about yeah. drawing our yeah. non-white brothers and sisters mm -hmm. in and exercising hospitality until we can run the bases. Would that be a good way to say yeah, that? I, I think we can um, also engage them. Look, I'm not trying to be argumentative, but I, I read the book by the black Georgetown historian, the biography of Martin Luther King Jr. I might not get there with you, one of his last statements. Um, it's not alleged, it's proven that he was a rapist a deeply misogynist man who abused women, he did plagiarize his PhD. Uh, they didn't strip it from him at um, Boston College, but they did put a note in his graduation jacket that says as much. He also, we call him a Christian, he didn't believe in the deity of Christ or the resurrection of Jesus, which means he's not a Christian. If you look at the statue of him in Washington, D.C., he's not the Reverend Doctor, he's just Doctor. They've scoured the word God out of all his quotes. He's a secular hero. And you can ask intelligently, why when you want to scrub Robert E. Lee, are you not scrubbing Martin Luther King Jr.? I'm not trying to be a troublemaker. I just want to know how your woke theology deals with this you, because you seem hypocritical in some ways. Can you explain that to me? I, I call that 
a gentle argument. You're probably not going to win it there, but you're going to leave a little ticking time bomb in their theology that might go off ten years down the line. <laughs> you know, leave them a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Make it a safe space to talk. That's, I think that's the hard thing for me is making it the safe space, and I'm having to work on that. Jeff? Can I take a stab at that one? Because I have been thinking. <laughs> is, I don't think that we're going to be able to start here in the building. I think we have to start, if I take Stephen's comments tonight, uh, today, and everything I've read about this, I think we've got to start in our homes. It's just inviting people into our homes or to meet us at the bake shop or, you know, and um, that has, you're looking for the entree. I have found, and I'm doing it again in my neighborhood right now, I have found that the entree into um, lost people's lives is my lawnmower when they're having a hard time keeping up with their lawn. Mm -hmm. That's the crack, yeah. you know? Yeah. And um, I haven't had a lot of success, and I've tried, but I haven't had a lot of success inviting some of my African-American, I'll call them acquaintances because we're not friends mm -hmm. yet. Um, I haven't had a lot of success inviting them to spend time with me. You know, I'll invite, let's have lunch, let's have a meal. And there's, there's such animosity in the culture right now that just, they don't trust me. Well, some things that I think you can point in the right direction with, um, I've always, after preaching, said, are there any questions? And not many churches feel comfortable to do that, but um, it's, it shows vulnerability, and this generation wants to be vulnerable. Using illustrations in my sermon when I preach on marriage, where I'm vulnerable and say, my wife and I don't have it all wired. We've been married 48 years now. My wife told me the other day she didn't know to death to us part was going to take so long. <laughs> um, but I made the statement, it's really hard to preach on marriage when you come to church and you've just had a big fight with your wife. And uh, the song leader came and said, oh, that's not true. He said, try singing a love duet in front of the congregation. <laughs> Vulnerability in sermon illustrations can help and Letting people ask come clean questions, I don't, I don't agree. If, if I were a pastor today, one of the things I would probably try to do is make friends with a black pastor and say, I would like you to come into our church for a meeting and you can say anything that you want us to hear but before you leave, let us ask questions. They will not be antagonistic questions, uh, but they'll be honest. And let's, let's start talking. Hmm. Um. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you. We love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.